Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. So you hear me, right? Yes. Okay. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I hope uh, you're all doing well. And uh, Hashem. Uh, we should uh, see the Yeshua Hashem very, very soon. So anyway, uh, we're Amen. Just, so we're just going to continue with uh, what we were talking about last week and then go on to a new topic. Uh, we're kind of covering what you might call Corona Halacha, different Halacha questions that come up because of the coronavirus. And the last thing we were talking about was uh, mikvah, but the particular mikvah issue we were talking about was the issue of being tovel utensils. Uh, what is the Halacha once again? That if you purchase or receive as a gift any type of metal or glass utensil that is used for either the preparation of food, like a pot or a pan, or for the eating of food, such as a fork, knife, cutlery. So if it was manufactured by a non-Jew or owned by a non-Jew and you acquire ownership, so the halacha is you have to be toveled in a kosher mikvah uh, before you're allowed to use it. We talked about all the halachas in detail and uh, the issue we discussed was, what if people had new utensils and uh, they don't want to go to a, a mikvah? This is called a mikvah of kalim for utensils uh, because of hygienic reasons, fear of disease and the like. So you'll remember that last week we discussed uh, various ways out, such as making it healthcare or even selling it to a guy and then borrowing it from the guy because the halacha is that you're only chayav to be tovel when you acquire ownership from the guy and not if it's actually the guy's own own vessel, right? So we discussed that last week and you'll remember that issue. But at the very end, we moved away from the mikvah for utensils to the even more important idea of the mikvah for married women. Uh, the halacha, as, as you know, there's a whole halacha in the Torah regarding the laws of nida the laws of family uh, purity, very, very important, at least for 12 days a month. Husband and wife must remain not only separate from actual intimacy, but even from hugging, kissing, touching, and, and the like. And uh, this relationship cannot be resumed until a woman goes into a kosher mikvah. And understandably, although I think uh, perhaps people exaggerate the fear, uh, there are women who are afraid to go to the mikvah because, once again, there may be other people who use the mikvah or the mikvah attendants or the custodians or the janitors, whoever it is, who may be carriers of disease and uh, there may be a virus on surfaces and even in the water of the mikvah. Now, I want to add right away that the, the women's mikvah's extraordinary precautions are, in fact, taken and uh, the water is highly chlorinated in fact, that's why I can sometimes hurt your eyes. And uh, the chlorine does kill the virus. Uh, surfaces are wiped down. And women are also encouraged to do most of their, maybe all of their mikvah preparations at home. So when they come into the mikvah, uh, they're not really spending time uh, using the other facilities. They just go in and out of the mikvah itself. So by and large, uh, even specialists in uh, infectious disease, have said that the mikvahs can be uh, relatively, can, can be pretty safe, but still people are afraid. So the discussion becomes, uh, are there any halachic alternatives to a mikvah for somebody who wants to follow the laws of Taras HaMishpacha? So let me just mention a few options. Some of the options will be actually totally good and some will be more problematical. The bathtub one, which I mentioned at the end of last week, that's going to be the one that really does not work. And I'll, and I'll discuss that. So let me discuss some of the options that do work. Uh, number one, you can be tovel in the ocean. The ocean is a kosher mikvah, whether it's the Atlantic, whether it's the Pacific, whether it's the Mediterranean uh, Sea. Oceans, and I would also include lakes, like Lake Michigan, if you're uh, from Chicago. Uh, these are kosher mikvahs. Uh, I'll discuss why rivers may not be. I'll get to rivers, but, but lakes and oceans are kosher as long as the lake is a natural lake. It was not like a man-made lake that was constructed that you sometimes have. 
Uh, now, the problem with oceans and lakes uh, is really twofold. Number one, there is a compromise of tzniyas, obviously. If a woman has to take off all of her clothes and not be dressed at all, going to the ocean is, is, is outside, and that may be a problem. Uh, one could make an argument that possibly a woman might be able to go to the mikveh and certainly to the ocean, even wearing a bathing suit, because if the bathing suit is loose enough that water can get under the straps and into the folds, and that would be determined, so the halacha might, might be that the bathing suit would not be an interposition between the mikveh water and the, and the woman's body. That would be one possibility. Uh, let me point out, if a woman is using the ocean or the lake, uh, she does need a shomer. She does need a, a guardian to be sure that she's totally under the water. And the halacha is the husband is permitted to be the shomer, the mikveh lady, so to speak, of his wife going to the mikveh. Because even though normally uh, he's not supposed to look at his wife, uh, who's not properly dressed when she's a nida, and until she goes to the mikveh, she is in a state of nida. But since this is only literally momentarily, meaning in one moment uh, she'll be okay, so we do permit the husband, and the husband can also be sure that there aren't any gazers or peeping toms. So that is one issue with ocean and lake mikvahs. But there's another issue that's actually much more serious, and that is, God forbid, it may be potentially dangerous. Yeah, you're not going to have corona in the ocean, but you can have things that are very, very hard. You can have undertoes, and people can lose their balance. So one has to be extremely careful. And because of this, there may be a certain leniency with ocean and lake immersions that we would not have in a mikvah immersion. And that is going to the mikvah in daylight hours. The halacha normally is very, very strict that we do not allow women to go to the mikvah during the day. A woman has to wait only at night and go to the mikvah at night. That's a fairly strict rule. There are some exceptions if a mikvah is in a dangerous neighborhood and the like. And an ocean or a lake might be such an exception that it's easier to be cognizant of safety and to take precautions in day where you see what you're getting into than at night. So ocean and lake immersions might be permitted in daylight hours, even though we would not permit mikvah immersions in daylight hours. Now, in a sense, you're between a rock and a hard place because in the day, it's more likely that sniyutz is going to be compromised by maybe people hanging around. So you find a secluded area. Again, your husband will, will take care of the uh, situation and you can do that. Now, let me clarify one important point. When I say going to the mikvah in the day, I don't mean the seventh day. I mean the eighth day, meaning to say normally a woman has to have seven clean days and then she goes to the mikvah the night after those seven days. If we matter tefillah in the day, we are not matering tefillah, immersion in the mikvah, on the seventh day, we are maturing tefillah the next day on the eighth day. That's very important. Uh, she cannot go to the mikvah uh, on day seven. She has to go to the mikvah on day eight or later. So that would be what you need to know about ocean and lake uh, mikvahs. And indeed, uh, they are uh, kosher uh, for immersion. In fact, they're also kosher to immerse your pots and your pans. You can do that as well. Uh, you can use the ocean or a lake in that way. Now, what about rivers? Now, rivers have a very, very interesting halachic complication. The difference between ocean, lake, on one hand, and river is a river is moving water. There is a current in a river. Now, it's true that oceans move as well, but the oceans is really a back and forth movement, as opposed to a river where it's actually going from place to place. So let me explain something about the laws of mikvah that you might find interesting. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. There are two types of mikvos. Mikvah, the word mikvah just means a gathering of natural water. 
and we'll discuss what natural water means. But there are two forms of uh, mikvahs. There is a mikvah that is an accumulation of rainwater, meaning rain falls into a pit, and that becomes a valid mikvah once you have the requisite size. And that's called mikvah. The other type of mikvah is called mayan, like mayanot, right? What does mayanot mean? Mayanot means fountain. Wellsprings. Wellsprings, that's exactly right. Meaning water that gushes up from the ground. Like, for example, the mikvah in Spat, the famous Arizal's mikvah, is not from rainwater that fell from the sky, but it's from subterranean streams that gush up. Right? So both of these are kosher mikvahs. A mikvah can be from the rainwater that falls from Shamayim, and the mikvah can be from the wellsprings that come up from the ground. But there's a very interesting difference between rainwater mikvahs and mayanot, uh, mikvahs that come from the underground wellsprings. And that is, a mikvah of rainwater is kosher only if the water is stationary. Uh, if, for example, you have melted rainwater, not melted snow that is coming down a mountainside, even if there's so much water that it's as big as a mikvah, you could not be tovel in that mikvah because that is moving water. And rainwater halakhically has to be stationary. Masha'enken, when you have a mayan, a mayan can be, can be stationary, but even if it's still gushing, it has not been contained, a gushing mayan is a kosher immersion for mikvah. So uh, I'll give you a little Hebrew terms for this. The rabbinic term, the Mishnayic term for stationary water is ashboren, ashboren. And the halachic term for moving water is called zochalin. Zochalin is zochel. It crawls along. So the rule is this. Mikvah, a collection of rainwater, only purifies biashborin when it is stationary. Mayan, mitaher, mayan purifies afilu even bezochalin, even if it is moving water. So now, Let's look at a river. Where does the water of a river come from? Well, the truth of the matter is the water in a river channel is a composite of several sources. There are underground mayanots that are feeding that river from its source. And in addition, there is rainwater, melted snow, and the like. So in any gallon, whatever it is, of, of river water, you're going to have a mixture of mayanot and geshamim. Geshamim is rain. Mayanot are these subterranean springs. So it all depends on the time of year. During the rainy season, we are afraid that most of the water in a river channel is geshamim, and therefore, if the river is moving, it would not be a kosher mikvah. But in the summer, when there's not any rain, let's say in Israel, and there's still water in the channel, we assume that's being fed from the underground streams, and therefore it'll be kosher. So a river is a complicated thing. You have to talk to a, to a rabbi if you want to be tidal in a river, because certain times of year, we assume that the water is mayonot, which is mitaher, which purifies even with zachila, with uh, moving, gushing water. But other times of year, we are afraid that the river is primarily geshamim, rainwater, which includes melting snow, and it's only mitaher biashboren, when it's stationary. And since rivers are moving waters, they are not mitaher bezochalin. Right? So... The ocean, as I say, is not treated as a moving entity because, well, number one, the ocean is considered to be fed primarily from underground sources anyway, so the ocean would be fine, and the same thing is true for lakes. But rivers do swell, right? Rivers grow and contract depending on the rainy season, and therefore there is a problem. 
And of course, let me just emphasize, if the river has a rapid current, it is even more dangerous, perhaps, than a lake. So one has to be very, very, very conscious of uh, safety and, and the like. Okay, so that's kind of some of the halachas of mikvah. So I mentioned the, the acceptable options, ocean, lake, and river, depending on time of year. Now let me mention another option, which I mentioned at the end of last week. And halachically, this is extremely problematical. And this would be the use of a bathtub. Can a person simply say, hey, a mikvah, I'm supposed to dunk my body in the water. Why can't I use a bathtub? Or if the bathtub is not big enough for me, why can't I use a swimming pool, assuming I'm rich enough to have a swimming pool or whatever it is? Why can't bathtubs and swimming pools be kosher for mikvahs? Well, there is some discussion. Some people do want to make it kosher, but let me explain what the main problem is. Um, I've, already I've already told you that uh, there are two sources of mikvah water. It's either rainwater, which is megishamim, water from rain, and that includes melting snow, and subterranean mayanots that can feed the water. That's called a mayan. Uh, most mikvahs are from an accumulation of rainwater, but sometimes if a mikvah is built on top of a natural stream, like the famous Arizal's mikvah in Sfat, that has the halacha of a mayan. By the way, I, don't know, I, I assume you've been to Sfat, although I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, obviously this, uh, at this particular time, you're not able to go. And of course, uh, we missed going to Meron this year. Lagba Omer going to Meron is the uh, big thing. You have 200,000 people who go to Meron. And this year, I think it was limited to officially at least uh, around 150 people. But I understand that 200 extra people crashed it at the end and there was a fight with the police, whatever it is. So you know, I, I don't encourage that. Uh, but we missed Meron this year. But in the old cemetery of Tzfat, if you've ever had this chus to be there, it's an amazing thing. You have the kever of the Arizal, and you have the kever of Rav Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And uh, you have Rav Moshe Cordovero, who was a great, great Makubal, the Ramat. And uh, you have Mabit. You have so many, so many great, great, great Gedolim and Kedoshim. But right at the base of the cemetery, right outside of the cemetery, is the famous mikvah of the Ari, which is built on a natural spring. And women generally don't use it, but sometimes they do. Sometimes uh, women will be there, and then the, the kind of mikvah gets like locked up for five hours uh, because uh, you know the men don't want to don't want to go if women are using it. Uh, but there's an old tradition that if someone is zocha to immerse in the Ariz mikvah, there's a divine promise they will do a complete shuva before they die, a complete repentance before they die. So it was a great segula to try to immerse in the Arizal's mikvah. Um, I did it once in my life. I did it many, many years ago. I did it around uh, maybe 40, 40 years ago. And I tell you, it, it is ice cold. It's uh, you know, really, really, you know, it's a very fresh water because the water is constantly rejuvenating, renewing. That's my note, right? That's why you guys are called my notes because you're in a constant state of rejuvenation and spiritual renewal. So this mikvah renews itself. The water is never stagnant, but it's ice cold. So Lamai said it's not the easiest thing uh, to, to do, but if a person is able to do it, that's uh, a great, great zuchus. Uh, this was the mikvah that the Arizal himself used. Okay, uh, so that's a mayan. Now, there is another halacha of mikvah that you need to know though, and that is, in order for a mikvah to be kosher, the water, whether it's rainwater or spring water, cannot go through pipes or channels that are susceptible to the laws of ritual impurity. Now, that itself is a complicated specialty. But generally speaking, ritual impurity means things that become impure if they touch dead bodies or dead animals or the like. Now, generally speaking, metal utensils become impure. 
things like plastic do not. So you have to understand, therefore, under basic halacha, generally speaking, the water of a mikvah cannot go through metal pipes. If it goes through metal pipes, that water is not kosher for a mikvah because it went through something that is makabel, something that is susceptible. Even if it's not, even if it's not tummy, I don't mean it is tummy. It's susceptible to becoming tummy. Even if it's not tummy, that makes the water no good. So if you think about it, therefore, uh, using a uh, bathtub or using a swimming pool where the water goes through municipal pipes, which are generally speaking going to be metal, is going to make the mikvah puzzle, and therefore you can't use it. Okay, uh, and this is this is a very very important important rule about mikvah. Uh, so here's the question: If you're building a mikvah and you need to accumulate, let's say, rainwater. How does the rainwater enter the mikvah? <laughs> you can't enter it through a pipe because if it enters it through a pipe, the water is not going to be good. So what do you do? What is the mechanism? Oh, by the way, before I get to that, how much water do you need in the mikvah? Anyway, how much water do you need in the mikvah? So you need a measure that is called 40 sa'ah. Sa'ah is a rabbinic measure. And 40 sa'ah translates into 150 gallons of water. So a mikveh has to contain at least 150 gallons of water. Right? So imagine that you had, uh, you know, a big Coke bottle, you know, so 150 of them will, will fill it up. Now the question becomes, therefore, it may take a very long time. You build a mikveh. This is very difficult. You build a mikveh. You have a beautiful building. But you need the water to come in. You can't just turn on the pipe, turn on the faucet, because the water goes through metal pipes. So you have to have a hole in the roof and wait until there's enough water that gives you 150 gallons. That can take a real long time, especially in Israel where it doesn't rain that much. But even in America, it takes a long time. You know, California, different, different states don't have that much rain. But the question becomes, how do you get the water in? It can't go through a pipe. So let me explain. When a mikveh is constructed and you have a pit, so to speak, that will receive water, the water has to come in through a pipe that is not susceptible to tuma. That would basically mean it must be a plastic pipe. And many pipes are made of plastic. Plastic or rubber. And again, if you're familiar with construction, uh, modern pipes are often made of plastic or rubber, PVC, different, different synthetic materials. So this is very important. I know some of you might become architects, maybe you'll design mikvahs, whatever it is. So one of the things you need to be aware of is that the water must enter, the rainwater must enter the mikvah through a piping system that does not involve pipes that are susceptible to ritual impurity. That basically means no metal pipes. The pipes must be plastic or they must be rubber or some other type of synthetic substance that is not susceptible to tumor. But even then, it takes a real long time till you get 150 gallons of water. It may take a year. So let me tell you some shortcuts that they use. Some posts can say, what you can do is this. You, can, you can't transport the water in buckets, obviously, because that would be defeating the purpose. The bucket is also metal. But some say you can transport blocks of ice that will melt in the mikvah. The theory is that the rule that if it's in contact with metal, it becomes puzzle is only if the water was in contact with metal. So let's say I have ice, right? Natural ice. We harvest the ice from uh, the Arctic Circle. And we put the ice in refrigerated trucks. 
and then we drive the trucks down to California and we put blocks of ice in the mikvah and the ice melts in the mikvah. You hear the point here? The point here is that even though the ice was transported in trucks, refrigerated trucks, which are metal, but since they were transported not in the form of water, but in the form of ice, you can put the ice blocks in the mikvah, and the ice blocks can melt in the mikvah, and then you have a kosher mikvah. So that's a quickie way of doing it, uh, that you can actually make a mikvah by melted ice, but you have to be very careful because it's a very subtle point. Because how did you make the ice? If you made the ice by putting water in metal vats and then freezing the water, you got a problem because it already became puzzle when it was water in the metal. So you have to, that's why I mentioned you have to harvest it as ice. You go to a, a place that has you know ice on mountains, and when you cut, you're cutting things that are big blocks of ice that you can then transport to the to the mikvah right so that's one thing so one way you get the water is by the roof that accumulates rainwater through plastic and rubber pipes the other way you get the water is by um is by ice and people combine the different different ways but you could see this is very complicated you got to be very very careful that you're doing it right otherwise the mikvah is no good but now i want to raise something that's very amazing so let's assume you've built your beautiful building, mikvah. And by the way, you know the halacha, that uh, mikvah is the very first structure that a Jewish community is supposed to build. When we start a Jewish community, before we build a shul, and before we build a, shul, uh, a, a, a school, we are supposed to build a mikvah. Because without a mikvah, it's impossible for a husband and wife to live together. And that's the mikdash, that's the temple, that's the sanctuary of God's presence. Now, if there's a mikvah, you know, 10 blocks away, you know, you don't have to have a mikvah in every block, but, 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 but the community has to have a mikvah that you can go to. So let's assume you built your beautiful mikvah. You have your changing rooms, which are really optional. They're not required for a mikvah. You have your pits. You finally have accumulated after a year either through rainfall or through ice, melted ice, you've accumulated your 150 gallons of water. But wait a second, how long is that gonna last? I mean, that water is gonna get dirty. That water is gonna get filthy. You have to change the water. Obviously you have to change the water. So what's gonna be? Every two months, you're gonna have to, you know, close the mikvah for another year to get 150 gallons of water, meaning, how does this make any sense at all? How do you change the water once you have your 150 initial gallons? So here, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret that people don't know. When you go to the mikvah, you're not going to the mikvah. You're going into a bathtub. How does that work? The actual place that we're tovel, and this is whether it's men, women or utensils we are immersing in a tub or a, a chamber that is filled with tap water what's going on but i i just told you that's not a kosher mikvah so here you have to know a very important halacha. it is true that water that has gone through metal utensils is not kosher for a mikvah that's 100 percent true Right? No, it's no good. But there's another halacha. And the halacha is any water that is connected to a kosher mikvah, even by a small hole, becomes kosher by virtue of its connection to a mikvah. So by that I mean the following. A mikvah has two parts. The real mikvah nobody ever uses. The real mikvah is a chamber in fact you don't even have access to it you know it's, it's a locked it's a locked chamber that the rabbi goes to the custodians go to and that is the 150 gallons of rainwater that accumulated 
and that water remains clean, that water is never used. Then though, on the side, there's a hole in the wall, a hole that connects that water to a tub that you constantly fill with tap water and drain, fill and drain, fill and drain, change every day. And even though that water by itself could not be a kosher mikvah, but if there's a hole in the wall, this is called kissing, in which the tap water kisses the water of the mikvah, the mikvah makes the tap water kosher. And this is called hashaka. Hashaka means kissing. If the tap water that's gone through the pipes kisses the mikvah water, that tap water becomes kosher. Okay? So the dirty little, not a dirty little secret, but the little secret that you need to know is none of us goes into the real mikvah. If we would go into the real mikvah, that water would become dirty and it would have to be replaced like every week or whatever, every day, whatever it would be. Rather, that water is left untouched and we're tovel in tap water that's filled up with pipes and everything else. But because of that little hole in the wall, the waters kiss, the waters touch. And that enables us to be tovel in the tap water. And that water could be changed a million times. Now, therefore, the most important part of the mikvah is the hole in the wall. Now, normally when the mikvah is not used, that hole is stopped up with a rubber stopper. And then when the tap water mikvah is filled, the stopper is removed and the waters kiss, and then you can replug it again because they just have to kiss once. But here is the important thing, and this is an accident that can sometimes happen. Every time the tap water mikvah is refilled, you have to be sure to unplug the hole so that water kisses the mikvah water. Meaning, if I refilled the tap water mikvah, but I did not connect it by removing the plug, it's tap water. It went through metal. It's not kosher. So I will tell you, I know myself, there have been times where accidentally women went to the mikvah, no, the, the, the tap water mikvah, and they didn't remove the plug. All of the immersions were not valid. They had to go back. Okay, you understand the concept? So again, it doesn't mean it has to be open the whole time. But for at least one second, the waters have to kiss. The waters have to touch. Okay? So this is again called hashaka. It's fascinating. So none of us are tovel in the mikveh itself. Now, chabat has an unusual halachic chumrah that you need to know about. That's why you'll sometimes discover that Chabad might not use uh, the regular mikvah that other people might use. Uh, they may insist on a certain standard in mikvah construction. And in order to accommodate that, many mikvahs actually follow the Chabad standard because they want to make a mikvah that everybody can use. And this is called bor, Bor means a cistern, al-gabe bor. And let me explain what Chabad's problem is. So the way I've described the mikvah so far, you have two compartments of water. One is the compartment of the 150 gallons that uh, was the rainwater through ice or whatever it would be. And the other is the, 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 the place where people immerse, which is filled and refilled and emptied and drained with tap water. And the kashris of that tap water is based on hashaka, based on its kissing the waters of the mikvah. Now, Chabad's fear, it's really not Chabad, it's the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe's fear was that in the course of time, every time you open the hole, some of the mikvah water may seep out and get replaced by the non-kosher tap water. And it might be, although it's only going to be a little bit, just a tiny little bit, but over a long period of time, it may wind up, you no longer have 150 gallons of mikvah water that didn't go through metal. Now, this may take a very long time, but eventually, 
the water exchange may be such that a majority of the water in the kosher mikvah is no longer kosher mikvah. Right? So the way Chabad uh, worked, uh, the way the Alter Rebbe said to do is that you actually have two cisterns, meaning to say you have a cistern that is 150 gallons, and then you have another cistern on top of it with a hole between them of 150 gallons. And the tap water mikvah is kissing the top cistern. And the top cistern is kissing the bottom cistern. But the bottom cistern will never get replaced because it's filled all the way to the top. So the water pressure will mean, or the surface tension rather, will mean that you'll never get water from the tap water mikvah that will go into the bottom cistern. So this is called the chumra of bore, a bore, a cistern on top of a cistern. And that effectively means that a Chabad mikvah is not going to be kosher till you have 300 gallons of water in these two cisterns, right? The bottom one, a hole on the top, a top one, then a hole on the side to the actual mikvah where people are, are tovim, okay? So this is uh, a bit, some detail about this. And you understand, therefore, that the problem of the bathtub is simply that the water has gone through metal pipes and as a result, and it's not connected to a mikvah. So if it's not connected to a mikvah, you know, it's going to be a problem because if the water has gone through any substance that is susceptible to ritual impurity, uh, it's not a valid mikvah, right? So again, people discuss uh, possibilities, but as they say, la halacha, we cannot uh, advise that uh, at, at all, okay? So that's kind of uh, a little bit of a basic introduction regarding mikvah. And you can see that it's a complicated area of halach. It's not so easy to build a, a mikvah, uh, but as I say, every Jewish community is supposed to have a, a mikvah. Okay, so now let's go on to another topic, totally unrelated topic, but again, some assorted uh, corona uh, issues. Uh, first, as you know, unfortunately, uh, because of social distancing and because of quarantines and because of lockdowns, so a lot of life cycle events, people cannot participate in a personal way. So, you know, you couldn't go to your family for a Seder or, or, or whatever it would be. So this raises uh, certain particular issues. Uh, let's talk about a wedding, for example. Uh, now, do weddings need a minion? Now, we know, you know people like to have big weddings, of course. But uh, what is the halacha in terms of how many people you need at a chasna? Do you need a minion at a chasna? So here we have to differentiate the following. A wedding is kosher. A wedding is valid, even without a minion. The only people you need at a wedding is you need the chasan, the groom. You need the kala. You need two kosher witnesses. And it's not through Zoom. They have to be there and see it with their own eyes to see the chassan give the kala a ring. And you need a rabbi to supervise the marriage. And the rabbi can be one of the witnesses, by the way. So you don't need a minion. But here's the thing. If you make a wedding without a minion, there are certain things you're not going to be able to do. For example, without a minion, you do not recite Sheva Brachas. You don't recite the seven blessings under the chuppah. In other words, the, the chasan gives the kala a ring, and that's a valid marriage, and there's a valid kasuba, but you're not going to recite Sheva Brachas, nor are you going to recite the blessings before the marriage ceremony. So there is a problem. So without a minion, you're going to have certain uh, inabilities to do things, but the wedding itself will be kosher. But because of this, therefore, uh, we try that we very much try to have a minion, and it's brought down that it's a very, very improper uh, practice not to have a minion. So, so again, it is a kosher, it is a kosher wedding, uh, but uh, you would you would not recite sheva brachos or the brachos before the chuppah. Okay, what about a bris? Does a bris need a minion? Absolutely not. A bris is kosher, one hundred percent even without a minion, and all of the brachos are going, to be, are going to be recited. Now, what about 
God forbid, Avelos. Avelos is mourning, bereavement. Let's talk a little bit about Avelos when it's not Corona. Let's talk about regular Avelos. We know Avelos has two stages, has many stages. Let let me go over some stages here. Stage one is from the time of death until the time of burial. In Israel, we try to bury on the very same day. In the United States, sometimes there's a delay a little bit. So stage one is called Aninot. Aninus, Aleph, Nun, Yud. Nun, Vav, Saf. You're not yet called an Avel. You're not called a mourner. You are called an Onane. Now, an Onane is a very unusual status, a very bizarre status. An Onane is Pator, exempt from all positive commandments. That means this is quite amazing. An Onane does not make a bracha when they eat. An Onane does not daven. An onane does not bench. So strange, you're a religious Jew. And until the burial, you don't make brachos when you eat. Because an onane is supposed to be so preoccupied with taking care of the funeral arrangements that we apply the rule, if you're doing one mitzvah, you're putter from other mitzvahs. We want your mind to be totally focused. So that is called Aninus, and the person is called an onane, an onane. Okay. Now, once there is a burial, the the, the name or the title of the person changes. They are no no longer an onane. They are called an avel, a mourner, and what begins is avelus, and that is when shiva begins. So it's important to remember this. Shiva is begins from the burial, not from the death. Your site, the anniversary. In fact, it, it's a little complicated because there are three stages of mourning. There are the seven days of mourning, which are the strictest. Then there are 30 days, meaning 23 extra days. And then if one lost a sibling or one lost a spouse, that's all the mourning there is. For a parent, there is a certain amount of mourning that goes up to a year. So we have Shiva, seven days. We have Shloshim, 30 days, which means 23 extra days. Then we have Yud Beis Chodesh, 12 months, which is a year. So we have four stages altogether. Onen is Priyavelas. Then we have Shiva. Then we have Shloshim. Then we have Yud-based Chodesh, okay? But they run from different points. Then eventually we have Yartzeit. Yartzeit is the anniversary of death. And then we also have Kaddish. A son says Kaddish for his parents for 11 months. Why 11 months? It is said that Kaddish brings the neshama out of Gehenim to Gan Eden. But only the worst Rishayim are in Gehenim for 12 months. And it's not considered respectful to imply that one's parent is a Russia. So you don't say Kaddish the 12th month. You only say Kaddish for 11 months. Not to imply that a parent is a Russia. Um, as an aside, can girls say Kaddish? Well, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. There are some poskim that actually permit women to say Kaddish in unison with men, with other men that are mourners. Others do not. So it depends on the Rav. Uh, there are different Sukkim. I myself, when I was a rabbi in Silver Spring, I did allow women to say Kaddish for their parents from behind the Mechitza. But again, different rabbis will have a different psaac on that. Now, the point I want to bring out to you, just to clarify, is that all of these periods run from different points. The yard site is the anniversary of death. 
So if somebody died on a certain day, the yard site's going to be observed on that day. It is not the day of burial. It's the day of death. On the other hand, Kaddish runs 11 months from the day of burial. Not the day of death. Very important. The seven days of Shiva, the 30 days of Shloshim, and the Yud Beis Chodesh, the 12 months, they run from the burial. So everything runs from the burial except the yard site. Okay, the yard site is death, but all the mourning and the Kaddish is from burial. Important to remember that a lot of people uh, get mixed up about that. Okay, so when does the Shiva begin? The laws of Shiva begins with burial. So here is where the Zoom question is going to come up. What if the mourner is not attending the funeral? What if the mourner is not going to be at the burial? Now, even before Corona, this was very common. I mean, let's say a person lost a relative who lives in Israel. And they're not going to Israel for the funeral. When do they start sitting Shiva? Right? If you're not going to be at the burial, when do you start sitting Shiva? So basically, as, as is always the case in Halacha, the answer is machlokas. Some opinions say, if you're not going to accompany the body to the burial, you start sitting Shiva immediately as soon as you hear that they're dead. As soon as you're no longer involved, with escorting the body, you start Shiva right away. Others take the position that you still start Shiva with the burial, even if you're not at the burial, because you, you, you know, you'll know when he's buried. So there are different minhagim, and this would have a direct impact in a Zoom type of situation where you're not able to go to the funeral. Uh, would you start Shiva earlier? Or would you start Shiva at uh, the time of the burial, even though you're not participating in the burial? Two different views on this. And again, you'd have to talk to a rabbi. Uh, but what this means is, what is interesting about this is that it's entirely possible that two siblings who lost the same parents may have different Shiva periods. That it's possible, according to some opinions, that the one that went to the cemetery will start Shiva from the burial. And the one that didn't go to the cemetery will start Shiva from the time the plane leaves. For example, if you stayed in New York, so you would start Shiva when the plane leaves to go to Israel. So as a result, the people who started Shiva early are going to end Shiva early. And the people who started Shiva late are going to end Shiva late. Okay, so that's something to be aware of that you can have members of the same family who might have different shivas. Okay, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Again, this is a big machlokas, but it's something to be, uh, to be aware of. Okay, now another question. Again, I'm just dealing with miscellaneous corona type questions. We're in the period called the Omer, right? The period called Sfirasa Omer. Now, the mitzvah of Sfirat Omer is in the Torah. It was last week's Parsha that we're supposed to count days between the second day of Pesach and the holiday of Shavuos. And we count the number of days of the Omer. And generally, without getting into so many details, what is the purpose of counting uh, the Omer? So the Sefer Achinuch tells us the purpose of counting the Omer is to connect the holiday of freedom, which is Pesach, with the holiday of Matan Torah, which is Shavuos. In fact, the Ramban actually says, Svirasa Omer is like a Chol Hamoed. It's like one big holiday. Pesach Shavuos is one holiday. And Chol Hamoed are the days in between. So it's a long Chol Hamoed. 49 days of Chol Hamoed. So you tell your boss, you don't work during Cholamoed. Get a long vacation. 
although the job is not going to be held open for you, I can, I can assure you of that. And what is the idea of making it one machola malay? Because one has to know that freedom that is not connected to Torah is destructive. We don't celebrate freedom alone. We only celebrate freedom when it's connected to following Hashem. That's why Chazal say, the Gemara Menacha says, that the korban that was brought on Pesach was barley. The Omer korban was barley. And the korban that is brought on Shavuos are the two loaves of wheat. Barley used to be fed to animals. Wheat was eaten by human beings. And what is the message? Freedom without Torah, you're an animal. With Torah, you have human dignity, human greatness, the image of God. I probably mentioned this to you before, the beautiful analogy of the Indian poet Tagore, who describes a human soul, and he wasn't talking about Jews, but it, it's so, such a perfect comparison. A human soul is like a violin string capable of beautiful music. But if you take a string that's totally loose and totally free and put it on the table, you can't get any music on it. It's only when the string is stretched taut across the bridge of the violin are you able to get music. That's the paradox. We think, oh, if I'm just free, I could then become the person I want to become. But no. Freedom alone, you're aimless, you're purposeless, you're rudderless. It is only when you submit to Hashem that your freedom becomes directed into something noble and something good. So that's the concept of counting the Omer. Now, you have to remember this. Some people get mixed up sometimes. There is nothing in this mitzvah that should be a cause for sadness. Intrinsically, the counting of the Omer is supposed to be a joyous time, a happy time, because we're looking forward to re-experiencing Matan Torah. And yet we also know that in the course of time, the period of the Omer became sad in some ways, and we observe certain customs of mourning, of Avelos, during the counting of the Omer, because during this period of time, we are told that 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died. And uh, they stopped dying on Lagba Omer, which we just celebrated Lagba Omer. Uh, and that's why Lagba Omer is a happy, joyous day. But there was a great, great tragedy. And why did they die? They died by a plague. But the Gemara says that the reason for the plague was they did not show proper honor and respect for each other. And God took them from the world. And that's why we think about their deaths, because part of how we prepare for the Torah is to show proper honor and kavod to each other. Okay, so what are the availus restrictions of Sphira? So this is fascinating. Don't make weddings. Don't get haircuts. And the minag is not to make the shachiyanu blessing, except if it's Shabbos. Now, you may be wondering, did I leave out something? What about the idea of not listening to music during the Omer? Isn't that a biggie? So here is a, a strange thing I'm going to tell you. If somebody were to ask you or ask me, show me where it says in the Shulchan Aruch, that you're not allowed to listen to music during the Omer. And, you know, your initial reaction will be, well, of course it'll say that. But I'm telling you, trust me, you can look and look and look and look, and you're not going to find a statement, thou shalt not listen to music. But how can that be? But you know why that's so? Because the Shulchan Aruch actually says, you're not allowed to listen to music the whole year because since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, we're supposed to be grieving and we're only allowed to have music at Hasanas 
and that's Sheva Brachas. So the Shulchan Aruch didn't have to give you a special rule about Sphira, or the nine days even, because you couldn't do it anywhere. In other words, it's not like people think, oh, the Shulchan Aruch said you can listen to music during the Omer. Of course you can't. The Shulchan Aruch says you're not allowed to listen to music the whole year. But Rav Moshe Feinstein writes, even though we do not follow the Shulchan Aruch, we permit music because we're such a depressed generation that we need that simcha. But l'chola pachot, in times of the Omer, we want to be strict. So we don't listen to music, right? So technically, the restrictions are no weddings, no haircuts, no shechianus. The minog Yisrael has also been not to listen to music. So now, let me just end again. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time here. Let me just end with one halacha. As you know, different people, the, the morning restrictions of the Omer are not the whole 49 days. You count the Omer for 49 days. But the morning restrictions, there are different customs. How much of the Omer period do we mourn? Some people start from the second day of Pesach and they go until Lagba Omer, and after Lagba Omer, it's okay. They'll make a wedding now. That's Minhag number one. Some people don't start the morning till Rosh Chodesh Iyar, after Pesach, and they'll go all the way to uh, three days before Shavuos, and Lagba Omer is a break, but they resume the Avelis after Lagba Omer. That's Minhag number two. Minog number three is they start after Rosh Chodesh Iyar, which is two days, and they'll go to Erev Shavuos, and Lagba Omer is a break, but once again, they will continue the Avelis after Lagba Omer. Different people have different Minogim, and whatever your Minog is, is the Minog you should follow. But here is the very interesting question. Can I go to my friend's wedding? Let's assume I have a friend. And my friend observes the Sphira rules from the second day of Pesach to Lagba Omer. And my friend can get married today. And he invites me to his wedding. But I observe the Sphira restrictions from Rosh Chodesh Iyar to, to, to three days before Shavuot. So can I go to a wedding which is permitted for the Chassan and the Kala because for them, it's no longer their mourning period. But for me, it is my mourning period. Right? It's a good question. It's a very practical question. If you get invited to a wedding now and you still keep the sphere of laws, can you go to that wedding? So we have a very fascinating psat of Rav Moshe Feinstein. It's an amazing psat. Rav Moshe Feinstein actually says, there is no Avera to go to a wedding during Sphira. There's only an Avera to have a wedding. And therefore, if Moshe Feinstein says, as long as the wedding is permissible, you are allowed to go. Okay, so I will uh, continue uh, with this uh, next week. I uh, wish you uh, well and have a good Shabbos and much, much Hatzlacha and Bracha. Thank, Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thanks, Rabbi. You're the best. Whoa. Hey, everybody, can you hear me? Yeah, we don't see you, though. Oh, okay, I'm starting my video. So I have to end the class and then start it again so that, so that we could um, have a separate recording. So I'm going to end it and make a new one. Is that all right? Thank you.